A lot of things happening this week, right? Uh, Probably one of the most amazing things that could have happened is that after 50 years, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade and put the right or restriction of abortion back in the hands of each state legislature. That's 50 years. It's 1972. There have been over 63 million abortions since 1972. It's amazing. So, I thought I'd talk about politics today. (laughs) She says not. She doesn't believe uh, that I'm going to. (laughs) She's like, like, don't do it. Don't do it. I guess I should have gone over this with her before I decided to speak. The definition of politics is this, activities that relate to influencing the actions and policies of a government or getting and keeping power in a government. It seems like that seems to be the big deal. Once you get power, how do you keep power? It uh, doesn't necessarily seem to, they seem to never able to accomplish the things that they're promised they're going to accomplish. Hardly ever. Uh, the work of jobs, or the work or job of people such as elected officials who are part of a government. That's so they're in politics. They're part of a government. And then, this is the biggie, the opinions that someone has about what should be done by governments, a person's political thoughts and opinions. So that's the definitions of, of politics. Regardless of, uh, of your particular party affiliation, or none, whatever it may be. I think we all have to admit the last six years have been pretty crazy. Right? So today, we're going to talk about the politics of Jesus, which is a little different than talking about politics. Because Jesus said right off the bat uh, that (laughs) the kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. In John chapter 18, verse 33, he's before Pilate. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this of your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are the king? You are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and this I have come to this world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So, Jesus is the king of a kingdom. Jesus is a king. He is the king of the kingdom. And it's a kingdom that is made up of individuals who are living in allegiance to their king. Who, who, what what operates this kingdom at this time? It's everyone who lives in allegiance to their king. Colossians 1.12 says it this way giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. 
I, I just love this. We sang about this today. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So our king and his kingdom have different values than other kingdoms. Our kingdom's values are what develop, or is what uh, defines us as followers of the king. As followers of the king, we, we have certain values that he's given us. In words, our values should be the king's values, right? I mean, it's not our values. <laughs> it's the king's values. So Jesus said in Matthew 6, 9, he said, pray this way. I think you're all familiar with this. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's will is for his will to be done. God's kingdom priority is for what God wills to be done. So what, what are the kingdom priorities, you ask? Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So Jesus says, first of all, the priority of the kingdom, the first priority of the kingdom, the first priority of your life is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You're to love God with everything within you. To love God with all your heart means to find in God a, a satisfaction so profound that it fills up all your heart. But, you know, Paul talked about this. He talked about being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But, but in Christ, he said everything else, I count everything else, every other achievement, everything else in life, I just counted as dung in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord and Savior, that this is so powerful to love God with all your heart, just finding satisfaction in God. We, we just believe this, that you, you were created with a God-shaped void in your life. And the only thing that can satisfy that, people can't satisfy it, money can't satisfy it, things can't satisfy it. Nothing can satisfy it except a relationship through Jesus Christ with God the Father, to love God with all your heart. Love God with all your soul means, John Piper says, find in God a meaning so rich and deep that it fills up all the aching corners of your soul. Often we're trying to get people to fill up the neediness that we have. We're all pretty needy, right? And we are looking to people to fill the void that they can't fill. They can't fill the aching in our soul, but God can do that. He can fill up the aching corners of our soul with purpose and joy and love. Love God with your mind means find in God the riches of knowledge and insight and wisdom that guide and satisfy all that the human mind was meant to be. Meant to be. See, loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind is going to look different to the people around us because it's going to be counterintuitive. Philippians chapter 2, I've always loved this passage of Scripture. 
So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, I want you to take seriously following Christ and what it means to be a follower of Christ. Don't be flippant about how you follow Christ. We've been talking a lot about this on Wednesday nights as we go through the book of Romans. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God's at work to do what? To will and work what is his will, his plan, his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, that'd be a start, wouldn't it? (laughs) He said, so first of all, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. He said, so if, if, we'll just, if we'll not grumble and complain and we'll be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of this, this bunch of crooks and perverts among whom you appear as shining lights holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So the first kingdom priority is to love God with all of your heart. Put God first in your life. Let God be the center of your life, not the periphery, not something you add on, but put God at the very center of your life and live with that purpose of glorifying his name in all that we do. The second kingdom priority is a little different. He says, he said, love God with all your heart. And he says, love your neighbors yourself. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We all love ourselves even if we don't like ourselves. Does that make sense? We all love ourselves even if you, even if the, if you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, you still work really hard to take care of it. We have a deep inborn trait to take care of ourselves. We love ourselves. We have a powerful instinct of self-preservation and self-fulfillment. We want to be happy. We want to live a satisfying life. We want food for ourselves. Uh, We're we're concerned. If we walk by the donuts and we look at the donuts and we think, I don't know if there's going to be enough. I better take one just so I'll have one. I'm going to make sure that I get one. Uh, you think, if you think that's not true, watch the kids around those donuts. Uh, <laughs> we want clothes, and that's a good thing. We, we want a nice place to live. We want to live uh, in a place that's free of violence. We want not only a nice place to live, we'd like to be in a neighborhood that's a good neighborhood. We want meaningful and pleasant activities to fill our days. We want friends that like us and want to spend time with us. Uh, We want our life to count. We want it to matter. Uh, Self-love is the deep longing to diminish pain and to increase happiness. We all love ourselves, even if we don't like ourselves. So 
all the good things we want for ourselves, we should want those for our neighbor. That's what Jesus said. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. As you want to be happy, you should want for your neighbor to be happy. If as you want a satisfying life, you should want your neighbor to have a satisfying life. As you enjoy food for yourself, you should want that for our neighbor. We should want, we should want people not to go hungry. Right? If you want a nice place to live, you should want, a nice, want that for your neighbor. You want meaning for, to fill your days, you should want that for your neighbor. You want friends? Then be a friend to your neighbor. As you want justice for yourself, you should want justice for your neighbor. Uh, Jesus says, take, take this, what's so obvious about us, take what we all do that we take care of ourselves Right? I mean, everybody got something to eat today? I mean, if you wanted to. Some of you chose not to, but you had a choice. It's probably you didn't eat because there was nothing. And there, even if you was nothing at your house, when you got here, there were donuts. We, we had that choice. You see, <laughs> so the Lord wants to help us. He wants us to take our self-loving, self-seeking, and turn it into a way to be self-giving. Not to just seek the same thing for your neighbor, but he says, I want you to seek what you seek for your neighbor in the same way you seek it for yourself. How do you seek it for yourself? Unceasingly. With energy. With perseverance. You don't stop. You don't give up. And that's, that's, how we're, that's how he's calling us. He says, love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself is an unbelievable challenge. We can only love like this if we have found first in loving God a love that satisfies our heart, soul, and mind. See, if we're not satisfied, if we're not fulfilled in who we have found in Christ, and we're looking for other people to do it, we walk around with our tank on empty looking for people to fill us. But if our fullness is in Christ, if we have found in him a love that satisfies our soul and satisfies the longings of our heart and and challenges our mind, then we can love our neighbors ourselves. Because we have to die daily to the overpowering selfishness in our own lives. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's now no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus said, on these two commandments depend, verse 40 of Matthew 22, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. When you, Jesus said, when you see people living like this, when people are loving their neighbor as their self, when they're loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind, when they're loving their neighbor as themselves, then you are seeing 
the visible expression of God's plan and God's purpose. The whole law and the prophets is fulfilled. Everything that's written in the Old Testament, don't murder, don't, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother, don't covet your neighbor's house or wife. All that's written in the law and the prophets is fulfilled unbelievably in these two verses because if you're loving your neighbors yourself, you're not going to murder them. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to covet their wife or their property. You're going to love your parents and honor your parents because the love that you have for Christ in God is overflowing, fulfilling you, and it overflows in fulfillment. So it becomes a visible expression of the purposes of God. Loving God is made visible in us when we demonstrate it by loving people. See, a lot of times people talk about loving God. We, they love God. They just don't like people. They love God, but they just tolerate people. Jesus says you can't love God if you don't love people. John even took it further. He said, he said if, if you don't love your brother who you can see, then you don't love God who you can't see. You're a liar. Pretty strong, pretty strong words. Loving God is made visible to us when we demonstrate it by loving people. The way we show that we love God is by loving people. The way we demonstrate that we love God. How do people know that we love God? Because we sing good? Is that it? Because we go to Bible studies? Because you're doing a daily devotional? Is that how people will know that you love God? No, that's how you demonstrate that you love God, to God. But how do we demonstrate to the world that we love God? The way we demonstrate to the world that we love God is by loving people. Only as we love people will people know that we love God. The most loving thing you can ever do for your neighbor is show them what it means to follow Jesus. To live in such a way that they see the joy of your salvation. My notes went away, sorry. I don't know what I'm thinking if I can't read it. It means that we have the peace that, that passes understanding. We live in a, a time of turmoil. We live in a time of chaos, and I, I don't see it getting better. If you, if you believe that we're in the last days, which we started being in the last days when Jesus ascended to the Father. So from Jesus ascending to the Father until now, until he returns again, what, whenever that window, the length of that window, we don't know. So we're, we're closer to the end today than we've ever been, right? Would you say that? Would you agree with that? 
Now, I don't know when it's going to be. I'm not saying it's tomorrow. It could be 1,000 years. It could be 10,000 years. It could be today at 3 o'clock. I don't know. But we're, we're closer than we've ever been. And in, in relationship to that, it seems to me prophetically that things in the kingdom of God will get better and better. And things in the world outside of the kingdom of God will get worse and worse. I think we may be getting there. So as things get worse and worse around us, as the world gets worse and there are more calamity, and we realize, I think we've seen, uh, we've seen pretty clearly that we're, we didn't, we didn't realize we lived with a false security because we've lived under such, uh, amazing blessing for so long that we didn't realize that the supply chain of goods and services was actually just riding a knife edge and it could fall off either way at any time and that you know if the grid goes down or if gas is not available Last summer, Tina and I took a little trip to uh, Tennessee, uh, and while we were there, there was software that invaded the pipeline that provided gasoline from, from Texas all along to the East Coast. So all of a sudden, gas was not available everywhere. There was a gas shortage in those places because the pipeline wasn't running. So they paid a ransom to the people who had put in the, the spyware into their system, and they got, the, they got gas back going again in a matter of days. But, but amazingly, so we stopped at a gas station where we had, to line up for, we had to line up for fuel because we were in Tennessee and we were trying to get back to Texas. And so we had to get in a line to get gas. And I want to tell you, people get surly pretty quick. <laughs> people get pretty angry pretty quick. So we don't realize that how, how often we're, we're teetering on the edge. And so we need to be people, not, not foolish, not with our heads in the sand, but we need to be people that have peace in chaos. We're not adding to the chaos. We, we have peace in the storm. We, we have the peace of God that passes understanding. What does that mean? It means you have peace when it doesn't make sense that you have peace. We sing that song, I've got, because it's scriptural, I've got peace that makes no sense. Because we're depending upon God and we, we demonstrate that. We, we show that. We show the joy of salvation, the peace that passes understanding. We live in the grace that covers every sin. We rejoice in that. We, we, we talk about that. We sing that. We, we give it to each other. We, we, we think about the future that we have. So when there's no future here, it's okay. Because we have a future in Christ. 
We have an eternal hope. We have an inheritance that is superior to this, that is better than this. Heaven, I don't know if you know this, heaven's better than this. You know, sometimes we, you know, we, 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 like we get mad at God if someone goes to heaven before we think they should. Have you ever, I've done that. My dad lived to 78. I thought he should have a few more years, actually. And I was, I was a little ticked off about it. I was saying, you know, Bob Hope lived like a 95. He was a worldly. And here my dad loved God. It's like, you know, and you just come to realize is that to be the, with the Lord early is not a punishment. <laughs> you didn't lose out. It's like, at best, at best, this life is an airport terminal. Have you ever spent any time in an airport terminal? It's miserable. On our vacation, we, we, we flew into London and we were going to take another flight up to Edinburgh. I know these are third world problems, right? <laughs> and, uh, and when we got there, uh, our flight left from Dallas a little late. When we got to London, because we had left late, we didn't have any place to, they didn't have any place to park the plane, so they had to circle the airport for a few minutes to get wait for a place. When they got on the ground, that caused us to miss our flight, because we were just, we, did, we had like 12 minutes to change terminals. It was impossible. So the next flight was 10 hours later. Now, when you, when you do a, a transatlantic flight going that way, you, you lose eight hours, so you lose a night's sleep. In airports, they intentionally make it where you can't sleep. They, they put barriers on every chair, so unless you're like weigh 15 pounds, you, where you can squeeze, and people, some people are able to do that. They're able to squeeze in through the rail, and you see they're de- people are desperate. What are you going to do for 10 hours in an airport? You know, you know, how many $6 bottles of water can you drink? I mean, you know, so you're, you know, it's, it's just temporary. We finally found in a secret hideaway place where they had some, some kind of lounge type chairs that were almost comfortable. Because they just, they don't want, it's temporary. You're not. It's, you're passing through. That's what this life is. It's an airport terminal. Our destination is better than this. And so that hope that's within us, it's a hope within us. It's a hope of better. It's a hope of a great eternity. Then if we live that way, if we live that way, if, if we're noticeable, if the will of God is prevalent in our lives, if we're loving God with all of our heart, strength, and mind, if we're loving people as we love ourselves, then it causes something to happen. Then the world asks us, what's going on? 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify 
Christ is Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So the, the best thing that you can do to love your neighbor is to tell them about Jesus. But the best way to tell your neighbor about Jesus is for them to ask you. I mean, have you ever had somebody tell you something you didn't want to know? And then somebody tell you something you wanted to know? It's totally different. If you, if you said, hey, would you tell me about, like, I've got a bunch of pictures. Actually, Tim took a bunch of pictures of the vacation. So, so I could just walk up and start showing you pictures of my vacation. You'd be like, I'm trapped here. <laughs> I've got to act like I'm interested in seeing their vacation when inside I'm angry. Right? But it's totally different. It changes change the dynamics if someone says, hey, hey, could, would you show me the pictures of your vacation? I want to see them. I said, are you sure? Because there's a lot of pictures. No, used to, we have, used to get them developed. Well, now you can just you can just take pictures. You know, here's a cat sleeping. You know, here's there's all this random stuff. The same thing is true of the gospel. A lot of times we're trying to tell people the gospel who don't want to hear it. The will of God is for us to share the gospel with the world. But God's plan is is that we open doors by loving God with all of our heart. And loving our neighbor as ourself, that creates a thirst and a hunger and questions so that it says, so that you'll be able to give the reason for the hope that's within you. You'll be able to give the defense of the gospel, be able to say, hey, can I tell you what Jesus did for me? You know, we're, we're so afraid. I'm going oh, to have to explain the creation of the universe and that it's 13 billion years old. The Bible is 5,000 years old. And I don't know how to explain all of that. But, you know, here's what I can tell you. Jesus died for me and it's changed my life. I don't have every, every answer to everything. But I do, I do know this. I know that Jesus died on the cross to save my sins. He rose on the third day. He ascended to the Father and he's offered me eternal life. And he's offering it to you too. And so through that, we can share the greatest, the good news. We can, we can speak Jesus. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, is the worship team back there? Are you all back there? Here they come. We get Alex. Hey, that's. And she's going to just sing by herself. Here they come. Here they come. All right. These are the defining values of the politics of Jesus. Our politics should be the politics of Jesus. 
the first things, the most important thing for you is to love God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. And you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we do that, we can tell people the, the greatest news and we can speak to them the name of Jesus. Amen? I don't know what song they plan to sing, but song two? All right. Let's stand and sing, and then we'll pray at the end. Help us as the people of God to not be burdened down with the politics of this world, but instead let our first priority be your will and your purpose. To love you with all our heart and love our neighbors ourselves. We can't call them to change because they have no power. Can call them to the good news of Jesus Christ who saves and who saved us, who changes because he changed us. Lord, help us in the midst of this climate. May they see from the body of Christ a love that causes us to shine like stars in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation needs you so desperately. In Jesus' name.
Jesus' name.